0: This morning we're thinking back in Ephesians, clarity and the mystery of the gospel, what it means to know Jesus. This morning we're thinking of how we were once dead, but now we're alive. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, dead, now alive. In Psalm 14, the psalmist writes this, the Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one, okay, do you hear that? There's no one who does good, not even one. I think this scripture um, is one of those moments, one of those um, passages in the Bible um, which tells us and reminds us of the reality of the human condition. And the reality is that we're all before Christ in need of rescue, We're all in need of reform. We're in need of saving. It's inescapable. That is who we are as human beings. We are in need of rescue. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, We must see the soul and the person in its ruined condition with its malformed and dysfunctional mind, feelings, body, and social relations before we can understand that it must be delivered and reformed and how that can be done. He continues and says, one of the greatest obstacles to effective spiritual formation in Christ today is the simple failure to understand and acknowledge the reality of the human situation as it affects Christians and non-Christians alike. And so he says, we must start from where we really are. Recently in preparation for practicing the way that we're beginning next Sunday evening, this is going. To, I'm really, really excited about this. This is going to be over the course of, of three years. We're going to cover nine spiritual practices, three a year, for three years that are going to take us deeper into the life of Jesus and what it means to know him and follow him in this world. But in preparation for that, I've been reading Dallas Willard's Renovation of the Heart. In my opinion, it's a, a Christian classic, really, really important. And I think perhaps even more important today than it was when he wrote the book a number of years ago. It's essentially a curriculum for Christ-likeness. And, and in the book, he speaks of the ruined condition of the soul, that we're all ruined, that we're malformed and dysfunctional. This is the universal human condition. Nobody is unlike that. We're all born with a need with a, 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 a need within us to be rescued by God to be reformed, reshaped into the image and likeness of his son. And so Willard speaks of the universal condition that we know is called sin and the effects of sin upon our lives. So as we venture into practicing the way, let me try and explain again um, as clearly as I can what the kind of thinking um, and desire is behind it. You see, the truth is that we all live in an age when many things are shaping who we are. We're all being shaped and formed. But as Christians, we believe that at creation, God formed us into his image and likeness, that that is how we have been made. But when sin entered the world, we have been open to sin's deforming intentions. We have been deformed. We're open to the destructive effects of sin upon our lives and upon this world that we live in. But the really good news for us is that through the incarnation of Jesus, that the Son of God came through His finished work on the cross. God has made a way for all of us to be reformed, to be reshaped, to be brought back into conformity with the image of His Son through the transforming power and work of the Holy Spirit that really, really excites me. This movement from deformation to formation in Christ through the transformational work and power of the Holy Spirit. But rightly so, um, any journey into spiritual formation, and Dallas Willard does this really well in that book, any journey into spiritual formation must begin with a reality check. We must check the human condition. We must check the condition into which we've all been born in this world. Ephesians 2, 1-10 is brilliant for this. The timing of this passage this morning actually couldn't be any better. As we begin a journey next Sunday of spiritual formation, it couldn't be any better that the week before we think about the human condition and what we all need in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1-10 in many ways gives us the starting point Paul writes here of the the nature of humanity, the human heart, the human condition before an encounter with Jesus, before any renovation of the heart has taken place. And Paul explains what that looks like in these verses. And in these verses, in these 10 verses that Dan read for us, Paul shows the clear contrast between who we are by nature, dead and sin. And what we can become by the transforming grace of God alive in Christ. We can go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. From being spiritually deformed to being spiritually formed and shaped into the likeness and image of God in Christ. It's the most wonderful transformation, isn't it? So let's think about this contrast now. If you have a Bible, um, follow along. I would love you to do that, whether it's a paper one or a, um, a digital one on your phone. Let's think about the first part of this contrast. Verses one to three, we see the nature of the human condition that we are dead in sin. So before, um, in, before Paul talks about who we can become in Christ, he gives us the picture of life before Jesus when we are separated from God, when we're dead in our trespasses and sin. That's Paul language. Paul speaks here of, of trespasses. And when Paul uses this word trespasses, he means, he means that we're all rebels. We're all rebels. Now, I'm looking out here, and you look pretty good this morning. You look pretty clean cut. pretty you know, You're looking all smart and, and smiley and happy. But you're a rebel at heart. I'm a rebel at heart. By nature, I am a rebel. I am a rebel. And the rebel in me wandered for quite a few years. The rebel in me wasn't following in the way of Jesus or shaped by the things of Jesus and the kingdom of God. See, Paul is telling us here that, that we're all rebels. We have a rebellious heart that trespasses our what we do, we walk into trespasses. We do things we ought not to do. We go to places and, and, and we go to people that we shouldn't connect with and, and go to. When Paul talks about trespasses, he talks about the rebel heart. When Paul talks here about sin, Paul's reminding us that we're, we're all actually failures. Now, not in the sense of, you know, you're a failure, you're no good at anything. Paul doesn't mean that. But what he's saying here when he talks about sin is that we have failed to reach the mark that God has for us. God is perfection. God is holiness. We know that we have all failed in that regard. We've missed the mark. We've all sinned. We've all done our own thing. We've all rebelled and and, and followed the desires of our heart, the desires of the flesh. We're all rebellious and sinful by nature. We can't escape that. We're both of those things. Paul reveals in verses two to three um, that if we live in our trespasses and and sins, if we live in our rebellious nature, he says that we will follow the ways of the world. Again, this is a description of the man or woman without Jesus before coming to Christ, before a renovation of the heart. And Paul doesn't actually water anything down. I find it really hard hitting working through this passage this week. Paul is really direct. He doesn't water any of this stuff down. These verses hit hard. So if you need to put your seatbelt on for this, do that now. Because Paul says that this way of living, if we live in our rebellious nature, if we follow the sinful inclinations of our heart, he says you're actually following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is a reference to Satan, the enemy of God, the adversary the one who is in operation to take us away from God as far away as he can take us, to move from God, from worship and towards other destructive tendencies within our heart. There is a ruler of the air. There is an enemy. But he is not the king of kings. He's not the Lord of lords. He's not the one who rules over all things. Only Jesus does that. Satan is a defeated enemy. But nonetheless, he's a ruler. And he has his own little kingdom. And it's the kingdom of darkness. He commands the powers of darkness. And our battle is with him. We battle him. We battle his armed forces that try to wage war against our soul. He is our adversary. He is our enemy. He wants to guide you and me into sin and disobedience. He wants to take us away from God. He's likely even wanting to do that right now. As you're sitting here listening to this, if you've got this voice in your head saying, don't listen anymore, switch off. That's the voice of the enemy. He wants to take you away from God, to pull you away from what the Holy Spirit might be whispering into your heart right now. And he only wants to steal and kill and destroy your life. He has no other game plan, no other ambition. His only ambition is to steal, kill, and destroy. I think we need to be aware of that. For a moment, imagine your soul as a garden, okay? Picture that in your mind's eye, okay? Your soul is a garden, okay? Picture it a vast landscape within, waiting to be cultivated and shaped. Your soul is this vast garden, a vast landscape. Can you picture it? Now, listen to this. One commentator says this Sin does not serve well as a gardener of the soul. It landscapes the contours of the soul until all that is beautiful has been made ugly, until all that is high is made low, until all that is promising is wasted. Then life becomes like a desert parched and barren, it's drained of purpose, it's bleached of happiness. Sin, then, is not wise, but wasteful. It's not a gate, but only a grave. Can you picture that? This is what the enemy of God wants to do in your life and mine. Have you sensed it? Have you experienced it? Have you felt his effect upon you? He wants to make your heart dry and dead. He wants to make you feel ugly from within and from without. He wants to pour ugliness over your head and upon your soul. He wants you to believe that God's promises on you are wasted, pointless. That the promises of God are never yes and never amen. He wants you to believe that God's promises are wasted, that God's purposes, any purpose he might have for your life is just drained away. There is no purpose. There is no point. That's what he does with our lives. He wants to turn our innermost being, the landscape of our soul, he wants to turn that into a barren wasteland to make us feel dry and dead and dirty and dusty and full of shame and guilt. That's what he wants to do until you can't stand it anymore. That's all he wants to do. Maybe you're here and you feel that way right now. Maybe you're listening in online and you feel that way right now. I feel that in my life. I'm going to come to the good news in a minute. But before we come there, the reality is that, that, that we're all born into this human nature, this sinful human nature. And again, Paul, get your seatbelt on. Paul says that in that condition, we're deserving of God's wrath. Now, John Tyson, pastor in the Church of the City New York, in his brilliant book called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise, brilliant book, he says this, many in the church today try to edit out the wrath of God. It's important to understand, however, that this is an essential response, he says, to God or oh, sorry, of God to the evil and injustice that's in our world. You see, when Paul in this moment speaks of God's wrath, he's speaking of God's personal righteous hostility towards evil, towards sin, God's refusal to compromise with it because he is holy, and instead God's resolve to condemn it forever. That's what God or well, that's what Paul means in this moment. But God's wrath, Paul says, remains upon unrepentant hearts, sin left unconfessed. And we need to be clear that those persons who stay in that condition, their eternal destiny is in great jeopardy. All that awaits will be a place called Gehenna. I don't know if you're familiar of, with that term. And again, buckle your seatbelts. This is hard-hitting. It's not spoken about too much in church anymore. But Gehenna is the New Testament term sometimes translated hell. And do you know who spoke about it more than anyone else? Jesus himself. Presumably because the Son of God knows greater than anyone else about the reality of Gehenna. Gehenna the reality of separation of hell. It's a place of future separation spoken most often by Jesus. Fusion young people, by the way, one of your big questions, you'll be delighted to hear this, is about hell. You're going to go there in a few weeks' time. What does hell mean? What's it all about? So you young people, wherever you are in here, listen up now. This is a wee, I've given you a wee bit of advanced Help with this. Matthew Playfair, I was going to say, I'm giving you some help here, but he's not here, he's out um, with the connect young people. But you're going to be talking about this um, in a few weeks' time. You see, Gehenna comes from a Greek term which means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. It was a real place. It was a real physical, geographical place south of Jerusalem, listen to this, where the filth and the dead animals of the city were cast out and burned. This name itself might give some insight into hell when Jesus talked about this place. Jesus was always helping people to understand, wasn't he? What might this place be like? Well, Jesus talked about Gehenna. That place on the edge of the city, you know what it is. The people would have known what that place was. Jesus was informing them. He was making them see and and feel what this was that he was talking about. Back to Dallas Willard, he relates the idea of lostness to Gehenna. He states that it is the place of the lost. And he says, when we're lost to God, we are not where we are supposed to be. And hence, we're not caught up into his life. And this hurts my heart. When you don't come to Jesus, you're not where you're supposed to be. The Father wants your heart. He wants every part of you. He wants you to come to him. He loves you. To be lost is to be not where you're supposed to be. Does that make sense? The Father wants you with him. He wants you with him. He wants you to love him. To realize that he made you and he loves you that he has a plan and a purpose for your life that is greater than any other. He wants to lead you into life. He has destroyed the works of the enemy and he wants you to step into that, to realize how good it is to know the transformational power, the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. Lostness is to not be where we ought to be, caught up in the life of God. caught up in what God is doing now here on earth. Caught up in the love of the Father that he lavishes on us through Jesus Christ his son. Willard continues and he says this. He says, multitudes of people pass by every day and pass into eternity and the only answer he says is that the ruined soul must be willing to hear of and recognize its own ruin before it can find how to enter a different path the path of eternal life that naturally leads into spiritual formation in Christ likeness come on there's another path thank God that there is another path are you ready for the good news boy I am I'm sweating here sweating God's word is so real, so alive so good are you you ready for the good news there is a path to that place called Gehenna but there is a path to life there is a path to life and this path is called the way of Jesus the way of the son of God there is a path to life. There is a way for us to leave outer darkness behind forever, to leave the wasteland behind, to leave the place of the spirits dead behind and to walk into spiritual life here and now that will go on forevermore. And the path is the way of Jesus. So verses four to 10, here's the good news. We can be transformed by grace and made alive in Christ. Why? Verse four says this, because of his great love for us. Because of his great love for us. That's who God is. He moves us to grace. Paul moves us in this passage towards God's great love and rich mercy. And I want to move your heart right now to that place as well. Let's shift our hearts Towards love and mercy and grace. Those two characteristics, great love and rich mercy, are central in the heart of God. To God is. In case you're confused about that this morning, God is rich in love. God is rich in mercy and he's vast in his love for us. God's wrath is real. But at the very same time, he is rich in love and he is rich His mercy, He is great in love, great in his mercy. The reality of sin and lostness and Gehenna makes God's grace all the more remarkable and beautiful and wonderful. His heart of great love and his arm of great mercy is extended towards you and me. Perhaps this morning you're sitting here and you can hear that. You can sense the hand of God reaching out to you in great love and great mercy. I hope you sense that. If you're not a believer, we hope that God is reaching out, great in love, rich in mercy, and that you're going to come to Him before you leave this place today. That's who He is. We read in verse 5 that it's Jesus who makes us alive. We were dead in sin, but in Him we come to life. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just good news of how good people become better. There are lots of good people in the world who become better people. But the gospel is good news that dead people can come to life. Spiritually dead people can come to life in Christ. Dead people don't usually live. But we can in and through Jesus. And I stand before you today speaking about these things, not because in any way I'm special But because I was once dead, now I'm alive. I was once dead, boy. I am so alive right now in Christ Jesus. Spirit of God upon me, upon my wee life. The one who put death in its place, his life is flowing through my veins. His life is flowing through my veins. His life is flowing through my veins. I believe in you. We believe in you. You're the God of miracles. Don't we believe that? You're the God of miracles. The God of the miraculous. The God who can bring dead things to life. No effort will be enough. No human effort. No human good works will do. No high performance will ever be high enough. Only the finished work of Jesus and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit can transform us into life. It's for you and it's for me. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, but I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Sure, that's not for me. What is it psalm said that we read at the start? There is no one who does good, not even one. Okay, I'm nearly done. Paul takes it even further. Verse six, if you're following, he says we are not only made alive in Jesus, but we are raised up with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Do you hear that? We are made alive with Jesus, raised up and seated with him. We have a place in heaven. Jesus was made alive. He was raised up, wasn't he? Raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And to be a Christian means that we share in that. We too are made alive, raised up and we are seated with the Father. We will one day be with him forever all because of his grace and kindness to us in Jesus For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Paul hammers that home. Grace, salvation, and faith. Those three words stand in contrast to the beginning of the passage which spoke of death and slavery and wrath. We are saved by grace through faith. Salvation is ours. And then Paul finishes. As if that wasn't enough, look at verse 10. He says that we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do the Greek word for workmanship is poema poema which is where we get the English word poem it also means masterpiece poem, masterpiece work of art if you're a Christian you are a beautiful poem You're a wonderful masterpiece. You're a beautiful work of art. God is doing something with your life. He has a purpose for your life. You're the poem that he is penning. You're the masterpiece that he is drawing. He has works for you to do. He is at work in your life. You are his masterpiece. You might not think that right now but I am declaring over your life that you are his masterpiece, his work of art. Let me invite the worship team forward. We're going to respond in song. But before we do that, we're going to pray for a moment or two and to set our hearts towards response to all um, that we have heard. So why, why don't you stand with me? Let's stand together. This series is called Clarity and Mystery. And we're acknowledging that life is a mystery. I think there was a song, wasn't there? It went like that, Life is a Mystery. Life is a mystery. It really is. There's so much about life that we do not understand. That we can't get our heads around. That doesn't seem so clear. Things that we don't understand that happen to us, that happen to other people. Things that we go through, heartache that we experience illness that we go through with ourselves or with other people, things that break apart, fall apart in our lives, relationship breakdown, heartache enters, we feel a bit of the ruin of the soul all over again, and we don't understand it. As a church community, we're walking through this, and we're saying, you know what? There is mystery. There is mystery in this life, but we believe that God brings a sense of clarity. He speaks through it all. He reveals truth to us and he pronounces promises over our lives that are for us. And we stand here today as his work of art, his masterpiece. God has work for us to do. He has work to do in us and through us for his glory. So, Father, we stand before you. Lord, as we prepare to worship you in song, we thank you that we who are in Christ were once dead spiritually dead but now we're alive in you we're alive by your spirit Holy Spirit we invite you to come right now bring your life giving presence upon every person in this place where there is spiritual death bring spiritual life where there is spiritual tiredness awaken the soul Lord, where there is spiritual destruction, we pray that you would move and bring healing and restoration as we worship you. The only response from the people of God is to worship you. And so as your, as your masterpieces, Father, as your work, works of art, as those that you love, Father, we thank you for your hand upon us, your work in us. And now we exalt you as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Lead us now, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.